0: Welcome. Welcome to season three, episode six of Joan's Take on the Chosen. As we look at the episode Intensity, Intensity, or something like that, right? Intensity, Intensity, um, which is hard to say. So, when we, before we started, I put in the, in on the screen, which I've put up over almost every episode, the, question, what did you think of the opening scene? I think in every episode here, in every episode, there's been this kind of provoke, like provocative opening scene that I think we could either really love or maybe have um, issue with. So in this opening scene, we have the dream of Claudia. At first, you know, we don't really know what's going on. There's this foreshadowing of the Garden of Gethsemane, right? I agree with my mother in the chat who said I. it was very evocative of the the Passion of the Christ for me. Like it just took me straight back to the Passion of the Christ, the movie with Jim Caviezel, the, the, the serpent and that feeling. So I have to wonder if the writers, you know, thought that if that influenced them. And this is, of course, the dream that Claudia has, the wife of, of Pilate has, referenced in Matthew 27, 19. I've always loved Claudia. I've always been intrigued by the character of Claudia. And it's tradition that tells us that her name is Claudia. Um, She has become kind of, there's been a lot of fascination with her. Um, The Spear by Louis de Waal, which is one of my favorite books, talks about her. She's a character in The Spear. She's a character, well, she is the main character of Gertrude von Laforte's short story, The Wife of Pilate. And she's really captured imaginations. So I love that they've introduced her character so quickly in um, in the seasons. And so quickly in, in season three. I wasn't expecting her to have short hair. I see somebody said in the chat, like, when she woke up, we thought, is, is this a young boy? But I thought, it has to be Claudia. I, I wasn't expecting the short hair, but I did ask around. And I'm still not crazy about it, but people have said it is... Um, it was possible for the Roman women to have such short hair. I would have thought they would have, I mean, I know that Roman women at the time really prided themselves on these elaborate hairstyles. And so I, I, at first I was like, this is anachronistic, but I guess it's not, I've asked around and it's not an anachronistic detail that she has this short hair. Um, It definitely causes her to be a foil for the Jewish women, right? Who are going to be depicted with this long hair and um, so it's a reference, of course, to Matthew twenty seven nineteen. when Pilate was seated on the bench, his wife sent him a message, have nothing to do with that righteous man. I suffered much in a dream today because of him. So this idea of Claudia's dream, we don't know more than that. We don't know what was in Claudia's dream. And it opens a lot of other questions. It's interesting to think about what this dream might be. It opens a lot of questions. What would happen if Pilate had listened to her? So was it a dream of the Lord or if Pilate would have listened to her and not, and and Christ's crucifixion would not have happened. Okay. So then some say, well, maybe it was a dream of the devil. In fact, there were a series of, of plays, the York mystery plays in the Elizabethan time actually depicted it as a dream of the devil who to dissuade the passion from happening But I think it was probably a dream of God. But was it what? What was the purpose of it? And there's a lot of questions. I think we can take when we think about Claudia's dream. And again, I love that they introduced her early. Who's to say that this dream wasn't a reoccurring dream? Right? Who's to say? And that's what they've chosen to depict. And it's really neat. I'll tell you one hypothesis about the dream, which comes to us in Gertrude von Laforte's short story. It also comes in Dorothy Sayers, who deals with it in um, in her um, historical fiction about Christ. And it's that there she dreamt her husband's name being repeated in the Nicene Creed, crucified under Pontius Pilate. Because if you think about it, Pontius Pilate is the only person mentioned by name, except for, you know, Jesus and um, Mary he's the only one mentioned by name in the creed and so the in those depictions her dream is this repetitious he was crucified under Pontius Pilate suffered died and was buried and in Gertrude von the short story she hears it in like gothic cathedrals and in deserts and in places that she can't even understand why these people are saying crucified under Pontius Pilate but she's witnessing the Catholic mass being celebrated and people praying this. I think that's really powerful. But here we have the first dream she has, at least in The Chosen, maybe she's going to have others, is this serpent and this agony in the garden scene. So there's a lot of questions. So Jackie says, are there references to Claudia anywhere else? It's mostly through tradition. So the Gospel of Nicodemus, which is an apocryphal gospel, it has a lot to, it talks a lot about this dream of Claudia um, and then we, you know, tradition has named her Claudia. So she's actually revered in the Ethiopian church and in the, the Eastern Catholic church as a saint. And in it's tradition that her name is Claudia, similar to our tradition that Fotina, the Samaritan woman's name is Fotina. The other question that's, that's really, um, I think, getting, like, like, people are asking and Angie asks it here is, do you, I think, Pilate would be that young? So it's interesting, I found out from um, an interview with Dallas that they had not intended him to be that young, actually. when they originally wrote, they, they were, you know casting people 40s and 50s, um, like, you know, like we would picture pilot. And the actor that tried out for Pilot, the, the actor they ended up casting, was young and he did such a phenomenal job and captured what they wanted him to capture that they decided okay we're going to take a different look at pilot and we're go- we're going to say like what if he was young what if he was you know this 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 guy who kind of fi- kind of finds himself in this situation he's doing the best he can and it's really intriguing to think about we don't know how old pilot was so we don't know if he was old or young. We just have assumed, right, because of our depictions. So I think it's really, I, I loved it. I love that once again, The Chosen is causing us to kind of think back to what we've always accepted, and is that right? Christy asks... Why would she be revered as a saint? How do I think the gospel writers would have known what she said to Pilate? Did she become a disciple? That's a good question, Gina. So it is tradition in many churches that that Claudia did become a disciple, that she um, was baptized, whether before, you know, whether she became a disciple before or not. Like different, again, a lot of this is like fictional accounts musing about her. Um, and, but Gina, you point, you point out a good, like, how did Matthew know that there was this private conversation? Somebody must've told Matthew, right? And so was she a disciple and told her story later? Um, only Matthew recounts the dream, which is interesting. And why would she be revered as a saint? Because of the tradition that she was baptized and followed Christ. So, um, not just for her dream, but for her later life. So, it's just interesting. I think um, are are we surprised that the chosen has forced us to like look at Pilate in a different light? Um, you know, it, it, it's important to remember that just like Judas, Pilate wasn't the devil; he was a human being, and it's important to to remember that and to kind of struggle with that. I think I spoke about this in a previous episode, but. One of my big issues with the Oprah Magal Passion play this year was that the the director depicted Pilate as ha- having this vendetta against Jesus and having like seeking his death and like seeking him out to kill him, like killing him out of anger and out of it, like this like vengeance. And that's not a scriptural account. The scriptural account really shows us more that Pilate was weak and indecisive and fearful and cowardly. And I think it's, it's easy for us to think of Pilot as the guy in the black hat, rather than a guy with weaknesses like us. It's easier to say he's the villain of the story, that he's not like me. Well, guess what? He is like you, <laughs> or you're like him. And, um, and so I love that The Chosen, again, has, um, you know, challenged this idea of, that we might have. This is a historically accurate representation that there had been insurrection, that, um, that Rome wasn't happy with Pilate, that he's really trying to hold things together. Um, and then, so I'll just continue to talk about Pilate at this point. He has this meeting with Atticus. And that's really when we get the personality of, of Pilot coming out, right? They're clearly old friends. You can tell by the way the actors banter, just kind of... The actors are so good in The Chosen that, you know, you can tell the that they're supposed to be old friends. Atticus is serving as a mentor of sorts to Pilot. And Atticus goes to Pilot to talk about Quintus. And I think it's really interesting... To um, say, like, you know, he says about Quintus, he is a man who wants to be remembered. Which that's like, you could tell that about Quintus, right? We know Quintus well enough that that's a great uh, description of him. He's a man who wants to be remembered. And Pilate really honestly seems to reflect, to self-reflect and say, we are very different then. And it's irony, of course, because no one's going to remember Quintus and we are all going to say the name of Pontius Pilate every time we rec- recite the Nicene Creed. We later see, of course, that Quintus knows that this meeting bodes poorly for him, right? So Quintus, go, you know, is talking to Gaius. He knows this meeting is happening because if you remember at the beginning of the season, Atticus told Quintus that he was going to go see Pilate. So Quintus knows this meeting's happening. He knows it doesn't fare well for him. Um, and he's really at his end of his rope when it comes to what to do with Capernaum. But Pilate really is struggling with this idea that he just wants peace, and he says that, and I think that's really interesting to see this young, inexperienced leader who just wants... He doesn't want to be in charge of a war. And This is how the Chosen's depicting him. He doesn't want to be in charge of the war. He just wants peace. You know, he's in this backwater. It's not a a desirable assignment. And it's interesting when he says, I just want peace. You know, is that the motive for him putting Jesus to death? Again, we don't want to like him, (laughs) but it's, it's the chosen reminds us that everybody's kind of likable and we have to kind of struggle with people as human beings and Pilate might be likable and we have to be prepared for that. So um, Dan points out in Eastern Orthodox, one theory is Pilate also converted and was a martyr. There's, it's interesting. Pilot disappears from history. And so there's this, um, real, you know, like fascination with who Pilate is and who Claudia is because they kind of disappear after this very, very pivotal moment. Jackie asks about the mystics account of Claudia. I don't, I'm not very familiar with the work of the mystics. The mystics might mention her like Mary of Agrita, but in city of God, and, but I, I don't, I don't know. I haven't read. Um, I mean, I know a lot of the Passion of the Christ was based on the mystical account, um, but I haven't read them, so I can't speak about that. Um, Jackie says, how do we unite East and West with all these difficult account, different accounts? It's difficult and challenging. Yes. Although in a sense, we've always had different liturgies. And so we've always celebrated, you know, I mean, I think the the differences between the East and the West, the, there's only a couple really deep differences that we need to reconcile the rest, you know, everybody's always had their own liturgy, and we all believe in the, you know, in, in a lot of important similarities. Uh, my mom says she thinks Atticus is going to become a follower. Christy says she doesn't know what to think about Atticus. Kay says I think Pilate's somewhat conflicted. I also don't know what to make of Atticus. I thought he was going to become a follower, and now I'm having my doubts because he's such a mentor to Pilate. I'm wondering if actually Atticus is going to be one of the reasons that Pilate puts Jesus to death. So I don't know. Gina says, Pilate just wanted peace is not really consistent with crucifying three men at the beginning of the episode. That is very true. But at the same time, um, you know, he could have seen this as a way to keep the peace because you have to make a point. So while it could cause an insurrection, if he keeps doing this, um, there's also this idea that Rome had that Rome would crucify men at the gates of the city, they would crucify men in very public places because it would it would prov- it would discourage others from um from you know acting against Rome. It would be a sign. So it's hard. I mean, Pilate really is stuck in a difficult place, as we see in the trial of Jesus. Right? Um, is he going to do what his conscience tells him to do, or is he going to do what maybe Rome would tell him to do to put down you know to to keep the peace, to quell? The insurrection. So it's interesting. It's a lot to talk about, and it shows us how interesting the seasons are going to get because we're going to wrestle with all this. You know, at the beginning, people were like, I didn't like to see Jesus suffering in the garden. Well, good luck because we're going to have a lot worse than that, right? We're going to have a lot worse than that. The disciples all kind of have struggles in this episode. You know, it opens with them sharpening their weapons. And they don't know what to do. They they want to protect Jesus. Um, there's the funny note of Matthew needing John to tell him what happened in in to Jairus's daughter, um, which is a funny little you know. They like to do that because how would Matthew know? Except, how would he write it in his gospel unless John told him? That I liked that. So they're they're grappling with this because they're worried. They want to they want to protect Jesus. You know, James has this misconception that power went out of Jesus without his consent. And it's another way that we're seeing that the apostles don't really understand, you know, and what would it have looked like to them? It would have looked like power went out of him. It's not, you know, he, he of course, it's not that he, 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 he said he didn't know, but of course it's not like anybody can just touch him and cause a miracle, right? That's not true, but they don't know that they're grappling with that. And it shows that limitations of what they know. But I liked this scene and that there was some good realistic, um interactions, you know, they teeth some of them are still teasing Matthew. Notice Peter kind of stood up for Matthew, which was impressive. I mean he's he gave him a compliment about his wit or I'm um, sorry, about his intellect. But you know, like when they make fun of his wit, you can see like, you know, they just show Tad like being annoyed that people are still making fun of Matthew. And so there's the apostles are still really realistic, um, guys getting to know each other and guys getting used to liking each other, right? And then we have the subplot in this episode of Z, who's really still trying to get rid of his past, to run away from his past. His past is coming for him, and he's not able to get away. And in an interview I saw, they kind of compared it to Mary Magdalene, which I think is really interesting that, you know, in the last season, we saw Mary Magdalene's past come back and her having to struggle with that and here z is is struggling with his past in a different way people are actually trying to come kill him and you know he doesn't he's sharpening a dagger and so we're like oh no he's gonna go defend himself is he gonna go kill someone is the old zealot gonna come back and i i did question like why is he hiding in the tent city at that point like um, you know, he has that hood on and is he just looking for the zealot that's coming to try to find him, or is he going out we don't know, right? And I don't think we're supposed to know. But um when he's in the tent city hidden, that's when he's found, of course. And we find out he doesn't have the dagger. At some point he's gotten rid of it in the episode. He has had a change of heart, or maybe he never intended to use it, right? We don't know. But when he kneels, he's not armed and he relies on prayer rather than violence and he's ready to die and it's in this surrender of life that he finds his life right he he saves his life through this surrender of life and he announces to his fellow zealots that the kingdom of heaven is ha- at hand what does the zealot say back to him you know he sees gaius in the in the tent city and he says you know this is not the kingdom i've been promised and i think that's a really important line um This is not the kingdom I've been promised. And Z says, he is not what we thought. And I think that's a really important line that could be said by Z. It also could be said by most characters right now in The Chosen. He's not what we thought. Who else could say that? John the Baptist could say that, which we're about to get to, right? Um, John the Baptist as portrayed here. I'll say that. Um, He's not what we, we thought, right? Peter could say that. Eden could say that. He's not what we thought. We still have a lot of questions because we thought the Messiah coming would look one way and it looks differently. So I think that was a really important line that um, that could have been a throwaway, but is really important. So I, again, I'm kind of grouping these interactions and not going chronologically through. So the, the Z scene, of course, happens right before the disciples of John ask their question. We're going to go back because we have this bizarre scene um, so we're still talking about like all the struggles of the disciples. So this, the disciples are all showing their struggles in different ways in this episode. And we have this bizarre scene with Leander from Neve and Nave, And um, I, I, it's a really weird, like, I know that it's supposed to probably create drama that someone's coming to kill Z, right? I don't know if that was your thought, but when the scene opened, I was like, oh, here we go. Here come the zealots to kill Z, and I think that's what we were supposed to think, but it just seemed very odd. And actually, in an inter- the inter- after show, um, Dallas says it's one of the more bizarre scenes of The Chosen, which I think is saying something. Um, so, Leander comes to, um, so Wendy says he's not what we thought would go to the idea that the Messiah would be a warrior soldier. Yes, for the Zealots, correct. But I think everybody he's not what we thought. Everybody grapples with that in a different way, right? Peter thought his life would be easy, maybe, perhaps. Eden thought her life would be easy, perhaps. John the Baptist thought he'd be freed from jail, right? So he's not what we thought for the zealots would go to the idea that the Messiah would be a warrior. But I think all of us have to grapple individually with who we think God is and who God is in our lives. And sometimes those things don't match up. Most of us don't think of God as a warrior anymore, don't think of him in that way, but we all kind of at times have misconceptions about him or how he works, and so I think it's calling us to that. So we have this bizarre scene with Leander. Um, I stand corrected. I think previously I questioned why they had gone to the Decapolis when they were not supposed to go to the Decapolis, and somebody corrected me in YouTube, thankfully, Um, and so now I'm saying it on the podcast, that they... They didn't go to the Decapolis, right? It was overheard, and Leander and others took it back to the Decapolis. And so we saw Leander briefly. He showed up um, when they were preaching in the first, that opening scene, the black and white scene. Leander was there. We didn't know who Leander was. We didn't notice Leander. Unless you rewatch it, then you'll recognize him. So, and they don't know who he is. They're like, who are you, right? Right and um so he's come because the message has spread like wildfire and that's a good thing right we want the message of Jesus Christ to spread like wildfire but it's causing trouble and so he's coming back because he's like you guys got to fix this trouble you've caused trouble now you got to fix it and everybody's up in arms right brother against brother this is exactly what will happen in acts and in rome in early rome that you know for example when people stop worshipping the gods it causes issues for people in the community, right? Either trades stop. In Acts, we see this, like a disruption of trade. The magicians are mad because they're not making any money. Um, in early Rome with the Christians, the Christians wouldn't worship the gods. And the Romans saw this as an attack on Rome. They, they If you don't worship the gods, the gods are going to smite us. The gods won't protect Rome. And so we have to rid ourselves of these people who are endangering our city. By not worshiping the gods, so this is very um, indicative of what's going to happen. We don't see in the scriptures it happening during the time of Christ, but I think it's believable. In that it happens in Acts, and it happens in the early days of the of the church, right? So they go off to the Decapolis, and um, in the after show, Dallas admits. They showed Philip and Andrew going and they showed them being up there, but it got really bulky. It got in the weeds and they cut it from the show. And so they're going to show at the beginning of next episode them coming back and like the effects of their of their trip. But they don't show the trip. And I think that was a great idea that would have really, I think, taken away from some of the other storylines. But so they go, they go up. And at first this felt weird to me because I was like, why don't they ask Jesus if they should go? Like, why are they going without Jesus's permission? But I'm like, well, maybe since Jesus isn't there, they just think they can't wait. Um, and, but it's a, it's a foreshadowing all of this, I think of what is to come in the gospel message. It's a reminder to us that the message should be radical and should change our lives. And, Christ comes not to bring peace in a sense, but the sword if he needs to bring the sword, right? He says he'll put, you know, mother against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And um, he's, he's going to create division in families. And we don't like to think about that. But it's if we're really living by the gospel, sometimes that will cause brother against brother, which is not Jesus' fault. It's our fault. Then we have the relationship of Mary and Tamar. So just to kind of finish up the struggles of the disciples, we have this scene between Mary and Tamar. There's been clear tension between them. There's been clear jealousy. And now it all really comes out. And and we see how different Tamar and Mary are from each other. Tamar is outspoken and very confident and bold. And Mary is, is humble and quiet and, you know, I think she she's much more motherly for the disciples, and she's everything she's been taught to be as a Jewish woman, and Tamar is everything that Mary's taught not to be as a Jewish woman. Um, they So they're going to struggle, and again, it goes back also to the whole Gentile Jew thing, and I don't know whether they would have been living together, and I'll say that again and again, but there's this clear tension between them, and it's interesting, they both think the other one always thinks they're right, which I think is interesting. They say it in different ways, but Tamar thinks Mary is always thinks she's right, Mary thinks Tamar always thinks she's right, and so there's there's just a lot of um tension between them, but at the root, they don't understand each other, and so they don't know each other, they don't know their stories and so they're always comparing themselves to the other without really knowing the other. And that's what's been stirring the pot, right? So we see like Mary admits she's jealous that Jesus commended Tamar's faith. You know, that I think that's a really powerful statement when he when she admits like, you know, well, you were the the gold star like you got the gold star that day right you were the a plus student and he found me possessed in a bar like there's real real emotion there and real wounds and it's interesting that tamar reminds her she says like you know do you do you um regret how we found, like do you regret your story or do you regret how he he she didn't say regret i should have written it down but she indicates like You have to be thankful for whatever brought you to Jesus, right? That's how you found Jesus. And so the story is good even in its brokenness. So don't begrudge your story even though it's broken and even though there's wounds. But Mary, we find, is still carrying her wounds even though Christ forgave her. Christ forgave her at the beginning. Christ forgave her when she came back, when she fell again. But she is so full of shame for that first encounter. She's so full of shame for her past. She's so full of shame over leaving again. I think she's terrified that that's going to happen again. And so even though she's forgiven, she is still carrying those wounds. She says, I'm doing everything I can day after day, and I'm afraid I am still broken. I worry I will never be enough. How many of us have said that? Or how many know people who struggle with that? That they aren't enough. Of course you're not enough. Of course you're broken. We all need the Messiah. He calls you out of your brokenness. Yeah, Mary, you're still broken. And you could fall any day. But that's why we have Jesus. That's why you need Jesus. And so Tamar says, I'm sorry for the shame and regret you feel, but Jesus forgave you and you choose to hold on to it. And that's that's so powerful that Mary is the one that's hanging on to her wounds. Jesus isn't. And how often we see that? We'll go to confession and we'll confess a sin. And it will still haunt us. We choose to hold on to it. Jesus isn't holding on to it. We are holding on to it. I think that's really... This is a really powerful scene. And Mary says something. She says, I judge your strength against my weaknesses. And so I'm seeing in the chat, people are pointing out, you know, um, that Jesus saved Mary. Tamar found Jesus. Um, and... um Cases we often don't see our qualities hidden to us, but seen by others, always a surprise when someone tells us. That's what they do, right? They tell each other here in the scene what they admire in each other as well. Um, And so what Mary's done is Mary's judging, she's holding up her wounds to what Tamar's done right. Because guess what? She doesn't know Tamar's wounds. They don't know each other. And so Isn't that so often what we do? We don't actually know people. We don't know their stories. We think we do. And so we make judgments about them and we make judgments about us. And so often we measure our weaknesses against their strengths. We compare and say, well, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can do this. And they can. But we fail to see that they can't do some things and we can't. Or we hold ourselves high and mighty and we judge all our strengths against their weaknesses. And they say, look, we say, look what a terrible person they are. Look at all the faults they have. Blame, 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 blame. I'm wonderful. But we don't know their story and we're ignoring our sin. And so comparing ourselves to others, holding up our weaknesses to their strengths or our strengths to our weaknesses is a, a recipe for disaster, So they both are judging each other, not knowing each other and not knowing their stories. I like that, you know, we all have different stories. We all have different paths. We all have different gifts. I like that Tamar recognized that she needs more gratitude. And I don't know about you, but it reminded me of the parable that Jesus says. I... Remember, and so it's this parable, it's, I'm not quoting the Chosen, I'm actually quoting scripture now, that Jesus is in the house of the Pharisee, of Simon the Pharisee, and the woman comes to you know wash his feet with her tears and dry his feet with her hair. And some people have said that's Mary Magdalene, and some people say it's not Mary Magdalene. And I think, I could be wrong, but I think they're referencing this when Tamar says that she needs more gratitude, Why does Mary have gratitude? Because she's been saved. Because she's been in the depths of hell. And Jesus went and got her out of them. And so we think about Jesus' parable in Luke 7. So I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven, loves little. Mary Magdalene loves much. She is grateful. Because she has been to the end and Jesus has saved her out of that. And so Tamar recognizes that maybe she needs some of Mary's gratitude. Maybe she needs to recognize more the gifts of others or even what the Lord has done for her. And she recognizes that I can learn from Mary. So Mary's recognized she can learn from Tamar and Tamar recognizes that she can learn from Mary. And there's a big growth there. Um, We have more about the olive oil and the good soil. Again, is this leading to a parable? Maybe. And Mary goes to look for the money that Joanna sent and she finds Matthew's prayer tassels, which will come up in the next episode. I thought it might be a good opportunity to show that some of the money is gone, but maybe it's too soon. Like we know from scripture that Judas steals from the money bags. And so I thought this would be a way that they would show, oh, some of the money's gone, but we don't really have clear indication of that um, in this episode. So then we have this scene with the disciples of John, right? So James and John go get Peter. This scene with with James and John and Peter shows us that that Peter's out of the loop. You know, he says, send Andrew and Philip to say if they're really the disciples of John. And they're like, are you you crazy? Like, Philip and Andrew aren't here. Well, Peter's out of the loop. He's not been with the boys. Um, I love how Peter tells John to take the log out of his eye. Clearly, he's been listening to Jesus, right? He hears Jesus's and he's throwing Jesus's words back at John. Um, and now we get this scene from Luke seven eighteen to thirty five. And so in Luke in Luke seven eighteen to thirty five, we have the scene where disciples of John John sends his disciples to Jesus to say, "Are you the Messiah, or should we look for another?" So in Luke seven twenty, when the men came to him, they said, "John the Baptist has sent you to ask." Are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Now, why does John ask this? There are a variety of possibilities why John might send his apostles to ask this question. One of them is perhaps he, now I'm talking about scripture, not necessarily the chosen. Okay, sometimes I have to make that differentiation. So in scripture, there's lots of reasons in real life. There's lots of reasons why they might've asked this. So John might've sent his apostles to Jesus because he wants his apostles to follow Jesus. You know, he's, he's told them, look, behold the lamb of God. There he is. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. So it could be that he, and I'm, again, I'm speaking about in scripture, in real life. It could be that John is sending them because they need to hear from him that he is the Messiah and they should be following him, not following John. So that's one possibility perhaps he wants to force Jesus's hand to announce who he is, right? So John and Jesus in the scriptures, we know, like John doesn't want to baptize Jesus. He's like, no, you should be baptizing me. So they have kind of this, like, you know, there's this idea that John doesn't completely know everything about Jesus's ministry. And so it could be that he's just like, okay, announce it already. And so he sends his disciples there to announce it. And we see that, you know, when Jesus is, Jesus answers his question in the chosen episode he's answering it in a very public forum. We have Gaius there, we have the rabbis there, we have the zealots there. We have the you know, the disciples of John there. Or he could be suffering a dark night of the soul. And I think that's a very real possibility that John is not divine, John's human, John has to struggle with faith the way we have to struggle with faith. You know, he's seen a lot, he's done a lot, he knows a lot, but now he's rotting in in prison. And he doesn't maybe know exactly what the mission of the Messiah is going to look like. And so it's, it's very real that John suffers this kind of dark night of the soul and is looking for consolation, is looking for, you know, just some answer. Are you the one? Like, just give me that consolation that my work has not been in vain. I think it's really easy for us to say, no, that couldn't have been John, but yet it's us a lot, right? We just want a sign. We just want, you know, when we suffer those dark nights of the soul, we just want some indication that the Lord really is there. So it could be that, that John's suffering this dark night of the soul. It seems that in the chosen, um, it's the latter. It's that John is beginning to question, but we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. It could be any of the other possibilities. It could be that he wants Jesus to make this public proclamation. It could be that he wants his apostles to start following him. Like why are you, why aren't you following Jesus? Um, and so it could be a combination of the, a few. So. Remember at the beginning of the season John is in prison and John gets excited when he hears liberty to captives opening of the prisons. He perhaps doesn't relate it to the year of jubilee, he relates it to his own imprisonment. So here Jesus has the chance to clarify and he says there are many kinds of captivity that keep people. There are many time, kinds of captivity that keep people and he's referring to, you know, physical ailments, Wounds of our past. We've seen what captivity Mary has put herself in, um, or captivity of sin. And we remember when we, we talked about this when he was in the synagogue in Nazareth in episode three release to the captives, the Greek word that Luke uses, means forgiveness. And so the Messiah perhaps has not come to release people from jail, but to release them from sin. So we see again in Luke 7 the next verse. At that time, seven twenty-one to 22, at the time he cured many of their diseases, sufferings, and evil spirits. He also granted sight to many who were blind. And so he said to them in reply, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind regain their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news proclaimed to them. What's Jesus doing in here? Jesus is reciting Isaiah 35, 5 to 6 and Isaiah 61, one, He had quoted Isaiah 61, one in the synagogue at Nazareth, right, when he unrolls the scroll. So he's quoting this messianic prophecy of, of Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, and so he's answering their question with this. This, this. They would have known this is a messianic prophecy, and he's basically saying, yes, I'm the one. Here I am. I am who Isaiah has prophesied. Are you the one who is to come? Yes, right. You have seen it. You have heard it. You've seen these miracles. I am the one that is to come. And again, in this scene, he's telling everyone from the rabbis to the zealots to Gaius, who clearly is less conflicted now. Like, I don't know. I mean, I know what partly what's going to happen with Gaius, but you know, it's interesting what lies ahead for Gaius, because Gaius has been told to take care of the tent city. He goes into the tensity. city And he doesn't take care of it the way that Quintus thinks he's going to because he sees a rope and he remembers Peter and he has a soft spot and he remembers the Messiah. So there's a lot that's going to happen. What lies ahead for Gaius when Quintus realizes he hasn't done what he's supposed to do? We don't know. But anyway, so Jesus, what's Jesus doing in front of all these people? He's quoting Isaiah. Now, Gaius wouldn't know this, right? But everybody else there would. He's quoting Isaiah and saying, yes, uh, like, say, should go, go tell them what you have seen. Now, it's interesting. Isaiah does not include the dead shall be raised, that the dead have been raised. I love that. If you read Isaiah 35, 5 to 6, Isaiah 61, 1, all these miracles are recounted but not the dead shall be raised. And the chosen does a good job pulling this out without overtly saying it because notice he didn't say it. And then he adds it. Um, And so he adds it separately. And that's what, I mean, Jesus adds the dead shall be raised when he, you know, in Luke without adding it the way the chosen did. But I think the chosen, um, you know, really wanted to add that, that this, that wasn't originally in Isaiah. Jesus does more than we expect, right? He does. He gives us more than we ask for, in the words of Thomas, right? He gives them more than we need, I should say. And so um, it's interesting in Luke 7, so not in the chosen, but in Luke 7, the dead shall be raised is a reference to the widow, um, the son of the widow of Nain, which in Luke 7, he saw the funeral procession with the widow at name, of Nain, and he raises her son without her asking he raises her son from the dead that is not in the chosen but that is a direct so in luke 7 we have all of these miracles in the chosen they chose to um bring back the idea of jairus's daughter and have that kind of exchange with the rabbi about that um it was really really beautiful um My mom just says that watching all the facial expressions is key. And I think that's really important. I agree. And so often I can watch TV distractedly. And with The Chosen, you can't. Because the actors are so good. There's this interplay of expression. Some of which isn't scripted. Some of which is the actors are so in... I just love how they are their character. And so there's a lot of unscripted moments that are really important to understanding what's happening in hearts and minds they are they're just it's phenomenal Gina points out that Rabbi Yusuf wants Jesus to be careful with how he responds to John's disciples right he says under his breath careful careful right um, because that little that little um, you're absolutely right Gina that little thing is a hotbed for like what is going to happen what is going to happen they don't know that gaius it, i mean if gaius wasn't a sympathizer at this point he who knows what he might do right and so there's this it's this hotbed between the rabbis and the zealots and the like we have to appreciate what is happening and that there's a lot churning here then we have the fantastic episode or the fantastic scene that i think all of us were waiting for And that's with Barnaby and Shula. And so Barnaby witnesses him curing the the boy of his blindness. And it sticks with him. And he decides he's going to have the courage to ask Jesus to cure Shula. We've all been waiting for this, haven't we? So Barnaby, Barnaby brings Shula. You can tell he asked Shula. Like he said, Shula, let's go. And Shula won't ask. We don't need to bother him, she had said. She won't ask. And Barnaby asks for her. So we all need friends like Barnaby. We all need friends that will lower us down into a roof. We, will, we need those friends that will bring us to Jesus, that will, you know, encourage us. So we need a Barnaby. Why is Shula afraid to ask? I think it's really important to examine that. We all know people like this. Maybe they're afraid to pray for something because they feel it's selfish. Maybe they think, well, other people have bigger problems than I do. Maybe they think they're not worthy. You know, any of these things could be playing with Shula. Like, you know, every, like she says, like, you know, you're busy. There's other, there's other, you know, there's other problems. Um, Or do we identify with our problem? Do we, we identify with that cross and we're afraid to surrender it? Think of Mary Magdalene earlier in the episode, right? Do we hold on to those things because now we're the you know, Shula's the blind woman and she knows life blind, she knows it's comfortable, you know, there's crosses, but she knows the, the devil she knows is better than the devil she doesn't, right? So, are we comfortable with our wounds? Are we comfortable with our crosses that sometimes we don't ask them to be lifted? And it takes someone else to say, you know what, you, you would be much better if you were freed of that. Sometimes we're more attached to our wounds um, than we realize. And so it's easier sometimes to, to live with this than to think of life without it. And I love how emotional everybody is, even the disciples, right? Like The disciples are so emotional when Jesus cures Shula. Again, that, the facial expressions, the tears, it's really powerful. Um, But we see also that that Barnaby struggles asking, right? Um, I'm fine. Maybe some other time, some other time. Like, like, is Jesus, you know, all his power sucked up for today? Like he has no more power left today because he's done so much. Um, But so Barnaby's not even going to ask. And as he's walking away, of course, he realizes he's been cured. And I love how Jonathan just says, there it is. Right. And it's a great scene. Um, the bear hug that Barnaby gives Jonathan wasn't scripted. They, they had talked about it. Jonathan didn't know that he was going to get the bear hug. So I just think it's a really, really powerful scene. Um, I'm going to read over your, Gina, I agree that Jesus cured his friends in private. Um, I love, I love that. I didn't think about that to avoid claims that his friends are faking their cure. That's interesting. Yeah, so you're you're absolutely right. Jackie says, Mary's words, I worry that I will never be enough, apply to several characters in this episode. I think there's this, this these common themes that we see in one life, but are found in other lives as well. So then we have this really heart-wrenching final scene. You know, we're on the high of Barnaby and Eden, and then or Barnaby and Shula and then we have Simon and Eden. Um, earlier in the episode we saw Simon trying. you know he's complimenting Eden's cooking. he's caring about the food, talking about the food and she'll she really has not you know she'll have nothing to do with it. And then when Simon comes home so excited talking about Christ, he he's, has this new energy, this excitement for the mission and perhaps she can't take that right She can't take the joy she can't take the excitement and she finally tells Simon something she should have done from the very beginning, right? But for a number of reasons, you know, she didn't want to distract him. She didn't want him to hold it against Jesus. She didn't want him to regret following Jesus, all of which then he does. He goes through those emotions and his grief. And then she gets mad that he's going through those emotions because he's putting words in her. So they, they continue to fight, right? They, they finally begin to communicate, which is important, right? She's telling him why she was upset He's telling her, you know, that he he was clueless, which we all knew. Um, but then he puts words in her mouth. And and I think that the important part of this conversation was when Eden says, leave Jesus out of this. This is between us. It's not his problem. Which shows to us why she didn't go to Jesus. Jesus knew something was wrong. She doesn't go to Jesus with her problem. And um, Jesus doesn't interfere because ultimately... This needs to happen between Simon and Eden. Jesus doesn't heal us, doesn't cure us without us wanting to be cured, right? He doesn't force himself on us. Eden was holding on to this. He needed this to happen between Eden and Simon. He wasn't going to interfere. And so Eden's not coming to Jesus because she doesn't really think she should come to Jesus, right? Why bother him? We have that other that thing again, right? Like, why bother him? Um, and I like what Dallas said in the after show. He said, Eden's wrestling with what role the Messiah will play in their day-to-day life. They don't know, right? He's the Messiah. What does that mean? And can we go to him personally? Like, does he matter in our day-to-day life? Again, something we take for granted looking at it from 2023, but at the time she's wrestling with, okay, this guy's the Messiah, but what does it mean for me personally? You know, if you had an idea of the Messiah coming to save the, the Jewish people from occupation, what does that have to do with my wounds? What does that have to do with my little grief over here? And so I think this scene's really powerful in that, you know, Peter says he's the Messiah. If it's not his problem, whose is it, right? So he has a much more personal understanding of the Messiah. But in we see at the very last, in the last lines, Peter's going to struggle with why did this happen? Because if he's the Messiah, if he's my friend, and if he told me to go on mission, why did this happen? Um, and so Peter and Eden needed to do this together. they needed this healing together. It's why Jesus I think doesn't intervene early, but now they're going to start asking why, and I think Eden's been asking why this whole this whole um, season when she sees the healing of of um Veronica. She's asking why and now it's an important question that Peter's asking. Why? Why? He just says why 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 and that's how the episode ends because that's what we all have to grapple with. That's the important question when we suffer, why? Why are we suffering? Why are we suffering? Right? Um and so there's this fantastic interplay of of idea that I'm not worthy to ask for healing, but then I follow Christ. Why am I hurting? There there are a lot of emotions and I think all these emotions in all these characters are the emotions of the Christian life. And one thing the chosen has done in this in this season has been to address these important problems, these important questions, these important um understandings and misunderstandings that we as Christians grapple with and that people who perhaps are rejecting the faith grapple with? How many people won't come to Christ because they see evil in the world? Um, They see that, you know, Christ isn't going to make all your problems go away. And so, you know, we have to also remember a huge audience of the chosen are unbelievers who are encountering the gospel for the first time. And the writers of the chosen know these are the questions they're going to encounter. When you first encounter Christ, you have to ask those questions is my life going to be different? Is my life still going to be full of suffering? And if you accept Christ and your life is full of suffering, you're going to ask why. And so I think it's really important that they're delving into this um, and into these, these really important questions and these really important dilemmas that we have as Christians. Um, and of course, we're going to discuss it much more in the next two episodes. So that's all I have for this episode, episode six. I'm going to scan through and make sure I didn't miss anything that I want to pull out of your comments. Um, Dan, I absolutely agree. Eden resents Jesus for not taking care of her, but a woman who's a stranger gets healed. Um, I think that's the foil between Eden and Veronica. And I think, again, I mentioned this in the last episode, but I think that's why, um, in some ways, why Eden's scene was so bloody, because we wanted to have that foil between the woman with the hemorrhage and Eden. And I think that, that foil comes out here. Um, Kay says Simon and Eden have to figure out their place in this puzzle. And that is powerful. Like how, like where do we fit as well? That's really important. And how do we embrace our cross? And these are all really important themes. And of course, we're going to talk more about them in the next few episodes. So, As always, if you can throw a a like, whether you're watching this live or watching it recorded, if you can give me a thumbs up, that'll help other people find this. If you know other people who love The Chosen and might be looking for commentary on the episodes, but really on the themes of the episodes, a Catholic commentary, a Catholic look at some of these things, diving into the actual scripture, please recommend it. And I love seeing all of you, and I love your comments. I love that this is a dialogue when we're on YouTube together, and Um, as always, if, if somebody misses it, I will post it on Spotify, Apple podcasts, and it will stay on YouTube. So have a good weekend and I will see you all on Tuesday to look at episode seven. God bless.